Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today was Anthony Howard. Dr. Anthony Howard is known as the CEO Whisperer and a business philosopher. He's the CEO and founder of the Confidere Group, a leadership practice consisting of a team of former chief executives who act as independent sounding boards to current CEOs. He is the author of the book, Humanize, Why Human-Centered Leadership is the Key to the 21st Century. The outcomes of this series came from conversations with leaders around the world. He holds a PhD in leadership where his groundbreaking doctoral research examined new models of human-centered leadership. As you'll see, Anthony is a deep thinker and often pauses before answering questions. When he begins working with the CEO, he usually takes them away for a few days for deep reflection and insight about their personal and business values and priorities. His approach to leadership is shaped by the time he spent in the Merchant Navy in his early career. He believes if leadership is done well, everyone does well, including the community. I know you find some really original thoughts from Anthony about human-centered leadership. Enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome Anthony Howard to The Caring CEO today. Welcome, Anthony. Hey, Graham. How are you? Very well, thanks. What does uh, care in the workplace mean to you? Um, it kind of goes to that question that that um, I just asked you, doesn't it? Like, ha- how are you? Um, you know, over the last year or so, when I've asked people, what has really been the most profound leadership moment for you during the the, the pandemic? The um, However the answer has been framed, it's always been um, my leader, my manager, cared for me mm. and and what they meant by that what people said is uh, kind of pre-pandemic monday morning hey how was your weekend yeah good good mm. yeah and anyway this week we're um whereas now people are saying um are you okay hey how you doing mm. you know like, no seriously i i want to know are you okay yeah and that wasn't just a one-off that was a regular kind of event people would be because there was only lockdowns and people working from home their leaders were saying to them, are you okay, you know? Yeah. And and what I heard over and over and over is people saying that they felt cared for, they felt looked yeah. after, that, 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 that their leader was genuinely interested in their well-being and, and, and it didn't matter what the answer was, that, the, that you know, they didn't have to front up and be, oh, no, I'm fine. It was like, no, <laughs> seriously, I know you're probably not because we're going through something tough. Let me know. We're in this together. Um, that's care, I think. That's been uh, very much our experience as well. You know, I've done a lot of webinars in the last um, 18 months or so, and we often ask people, you know, what's been the best team you've been in and ask people to um, to rate that. And always number one is we had each other's back, which right. uh, I think yeah. is really interesting. And it is, uh, you know, when you feel someone has your back, you feel they care for you, don't they? 
yeah, they've they've kind of taken an interest. They're they're they're, they're looking out for you in some kind of way, um, which gives me a confidence that I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Exactly, exactly. And uh, you're known uh, as the CEO Whisperer, Anthony, which is a bit of a you know an uncommon um, thought leadership. What um, can you just let people know who may not know about your background? What led to this role you now have? When I left school, I went away to sea. So I was a navigator in the, or a trainee navigator in the Merchant Navy. And um, I was, I thought I was all grown up, but I wasn't. I was a, I was a boy, you know, I'd just turned 17. And, um, but I had this kind of extraordinary experience where, where I'd be on a ship in the middle of the ocean and, you know, on watch at night. Um, you know, when they'd kind of trust me to look after the ship because there was nothing else around. Um, <laughs> and it'd be the middle of the night and then I'd hear men coming up the stairs and and you'd hear someone coming up and they'd, they'd come through the, the blackout curtains and and they'd kind of stand and, you know, get their night vision and look around for, for wherever you were and, 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 they, and they, you'd often be out on the wing of the bridge just kind of looking, looking out. And they'd come and they'd stand beside me and, and they'd literally just stand beside me and we'd both look out to the out to the horizon, um, and then it often be, hey, you know, how you doing? Um, as in, in that informal kind of, hey, how's it going, kind of thing. Um, and then and then they'd say the most extraordinary things. They'd say, um, hey, you know, I've just got a telegram. This was in the olden days. Um, I've just got a telegram from my wife. <laughs> you know, our our son's been in a car accident, or I've just got a telegram from my wife. She's going to leave me. Told me when I come home, don't come home. Um, all sorts of extraordinary things that they would just reveal that in the day-to-day you would have no idea that was going on. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, 17, 18 years old, uh, I was really unfamiliar with that experience. Uh, but I could kind of empathise in some sort of way, almost at a human level, and they didn't want someone to solve a problem for them. They needed someone who would just listen to them. And and I found that I had this facility for, for listening to people and not just listening to people but creating a space where they could reveal the things that were really on their mind, you know, and, and I didn't, of course, realise then that this would lead to uh, the kind of career that I'm in. But, you know, I was in a conversation last week with a CEO of a, um, you know, a well, well-known organisation and, uh, and at one level we were having a normal conversation talking about what's going on in the firm and those kind of things, but at the same time talking about what's going on with him and and at the end of it, he said, you know, I can talk with you about things that I just can't talk about with anybody else. And and so it's a combination of those things, the, the creating a safe space, the non-judgmentalism, um, the non-rushing to s- solve a problem, just simply the listening and caring and, and holding up a kind of mirror that enables people to see their best selves in that mirror. And, you know, I've, frankly, I yeah. think that's some kind of gift. That, that I've been given and I have an opportunity to serve people in using that gift. And what sort of things was that CEO wanting to discuss that he couldn't discuss with other people? Well, that's, that, that's, that's the interesting thing because often I think, what did we discuss that you can't discuss with anybody else? <laughs> and, and I would find it hard to put my finger on that, but, but I think the framing for it would be is probably in the way that they're discussed. And so, so with me, 
what kind of comes out is the the vulnerabilities, the, the concerns, the personal turmoils, um, the things that if you discussed it with your colleagues, they might be concerned about, um, you know, how, whether you're up to the job or not or whether you can help us get through the kind of things that if you discussed it with the board, um, it, it might trigger a need to make a disclosure kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and, and so it, it's just the, the, it's the same kind of things that they would talk about with others, strategy, vision, direction, legacy, you know, any number of things to do with, you know, leading an organisation, caring for people and so forth. But it's probably in the way that they're discussed, the deeply personal manner in which people discuss things and mm. and to the to the non-judgmentalism, like they really know it doesn't matter what they tell me. I'm not going to say, <laughs> you get to be a CEO if you don't know the answer to that. Or, you know, I'm not going to say, mate, seriously, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to listen to it. And because and, as you know, a lot of times people just need someone to listen to them. People, as people, we need to be heard and understood. And when you create that environment for people, mm. They grow and develop. They flourish. They become fulfilled. And, and mm. we just got to listen. Yeah. We could do a lot more of that in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What other skills or qualities do you think you have, apart from the great listening skills, that has really helped you as a CEO whisperer? The, um, the, the, the thing that people remark on more than anything else um, more than the listening. The listening is something that I observe in myself. But the thing that people remark on more than anything else is, isn't it? And this is the way they frame it. They say, I ask them the questions that no one else is asking them. Mm. And so, um, in the, in the olden days, I, you know, I spent a number of years at sea and, and then I worked in church organizations for many years doing kind of mission work and youth work. But in that context, I studied philosophy and theology. And and I was fortunate to come across um, a Canadian philosopher called Bernard Lonigan. And um, Lonigan has a very simple um, kind of methodology, if you like, for knowing how we think and how the kind of processes go on in our mind. And and I just found that, and plus the kind of philosophical study of the of Plato and Socrates, Aristotle, and so forth, um, has just given me an ability to reframe questions and ask questions at a meta level rather than the more simple kind of level so it kind of goes to meaning and purpose or why what what's the underlying issues what are the bigger concerns how can we look at that from a different perspective um the ability to say well not simply it's it's either or but but um rather than than um you know the and the either or but to kind of say well look we've got options but that's an entirely new way of thinking that we could bring to it and that comes through a better questioning kind of process yeah and uh what what are some of those questions that you ask which no one else does is it is it um much more about the why they're doing it or why they're concerned what are the things that you touch on that other people don't ask them yeah um it's an interesting i don't have I mean, I kind of have a set of questions that I that I might ask, and I'll touch on some. Um, but it's more that in a conversation, you'll hear what's being said, and it becomes evident what's not being said. Mm. Mm. And when you can detect not what's not being said and ask a question about that, 
that's where the questions emerge. Yeah. So so sometimes it can be as simple as, hey, Graham, you're like, I hear what you're saying. What are you not telling me? Mm. What are you not asking? What's going on in your head mm. that you're afraid to bring up or afraid to ask or whatever? Or maybe you can't even verbalize. And so um, just asking questions like that. But one question that I ask, which anybody can ask, um, is, you know, when you're meeting someone, particularly for the first time, um, rather than, hey, how are you? Who are you? What do you do? You know, the, the, you know, kind of get a conversation going. I ask people, what is your story? Mm. And, and when I, literally a stranger, meeting them for the first time, I'll say, hey, you know, nice to meet what What's your story? Mm. And most people will look at me in a kind of quizzical way, like, well, <laughs> kind of what, what, what do you mean? Um, and, and I'll say, well, look, my assumption is that you were born at a very young age. <laughs> What happened next? <laughs> and and that just kind of loosens them up, and and people start to talk. And of course, when you tell a story, that that invites questions. You know, oh, what was it like there? Or gee, that's interesting. You lived in that country or this country. What was that like? How was that experience? And and mm. and so you get to meet the person. Yeah, they they feel and understood. And you know, I think if more of us took time to hear one another's story. That would change the way we think, you know, because I I encounter the other um, primarily in a role, CEO, CFO, husband, wife, mother, father. You know, we, we, we kind of have those categories mm. that we fall into, um, which are helpful, but it's not my story. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I do with executive teams is I get the team away together to hear one another's story. Mm. And you shift from being a CFO or a HR director or whatever, you shift to being a person yeah. with hopes and dreams and aspirations, with capabilities and competencies that I just didn't know because I thought of you in that very narrow, you know, finance role yeah. um, for, for argument's sake. And those all go to elements of care. Yeah. You know, if I take time to hear you, that's, that's caring for you. It is. It is very much. And you certainly find out things that you, as you say, you don't get from normal questions. Like I was a, um mm. executive search consultant for a long time. And I'd ask something similar, uh, just, you know, can you give me a brief overview of your career? So mine was much more career focused. But what I was really interested in was the steps they made along the way, you know, the steps they made in what looked to be yeah. not a straight line, it was something outside the box and why they took that. And mm. and that would often give real perspective on um, on their role, on their life and their story, I think. And so mm. I can really I can really see the value of that. You spent um, a fair bit of time doing a PhD at uh, Notre Dame University. Mm. What did you? What was your topic, and why did you choose that topic to explore? Um, yeah, so I've I've always been fascinated in people, and uh, particularly fascinated in leadership. Um, you know, as that thing, if you like, to kind of get stuff done with and through people, mm. and. You know, for many, many, many years, 20 years nearly, um, I've spent in non-pandemic world, I've spent weeks every year overseas meeting leaders, talking to leaders, uh, what makes them tick, um, how did they get to where they are, just, you know, what can we distill from their, from their insights. And in that context, I often ask them about the trends they saw, what they saw coming down the, coming down the pipe that we have to prepare for, which led to another question like who, they, who was going to be the leaders in that environment? And um, no one had an answer to that. 
Mm. No one was able to stay. There was a, I, I, I was met with this overwhelming concern about the future and an overwhelming concern about the lack of leadership to deal with or manage or lead through whatever it is we were going to encounter. Mm. And so I asked them to describe what kind of leader, what kind of traits, and so they would talk about it as a Mandela kind of individual, a Martin Luther King kind of individual. Um, they would talk about it as a moral leadership thing, and, 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 and then they started talking about it as a human leadership or a human-centred kind of leader, and this was in the time years before human-centred was bandied, bandied around so much, and that led to a, to a book that I wrote on human-centred leadership back in 2015. Um, and Notre Dame, frankly, they saw the book um, and asked me if I'd like to do the academic work to underpin the, uh, the, the, the work in the book, which was just an enormous, enormous privilege to then go and do a PhD to do the study but what if if you kind of what drove the phd because of my work with leaders and my observing of leaders um i could tell as can many others you know by the by the way a leader treats people what they think a person is mm. and and it's really common for people to be treated as a means to an end as a resource mm. as an asset as something to be used and disposed of. And when you've got all you can from this one, let, let's get ourselves another one. Let's put an ad out and we'll, we'll get another one in. That's no way to treat people. Mm. And and it struck me that the leadership models were deficient because leader, the vast majority of leadership models talk about the things that leaders do or the attributes, behaviours, competencies of leadership. But we fail to address actually that leadership is done by a person with another person. Mm. So what does it mean to be a person who's leading other persons? And that drove the PhD yeah. research to kind of take the human-centred leadership, if you like, to a whole other um, philosophical level. And did you learn anything additional to, you know, you put forward your ideas in your book Humanise, which is a great a great book which I recommend to people. Do you, did you learn anything extra by going through that more rigorous process? <laughs> yeah, I just learned so much. That could be the... You know, I'll 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 another podcast, but um, um, you know, at one thing, one level, I learned about a rigorous process, mm. and um, you know, thank you for recommending my book. I enjoyed writing it, um, but I look at it now and go, it lacks rigor. Mm. It kind of picks up on conversations, it picks up on interviews, it kind of highlights some trends and and some interesting ideas and interesting concepts, and. I, and you know, I'd like to think does that well. Mm. Um, but what I did in the, the rigour that was applied in the PhD, you know, with my supervisors constantly saying, well, we know what you know. <laughs> we know you know what you mean, but no one else does. <laughs> um, and um, kind, of, kind of battling away, battling away at that. But, um, but the thing that the book didn't have that really did emerge from the PhD uh, was a model of leadership grounded in the human person and, and, and a thing that says, um, this is what it means to be a person, and if that's what it means to be a person, then this is how we mm. should lead persons and mm. care for persons in in a leadership mm. context. Yeah. When you go about, um, you know, taking on an assignment to mentor a CEO, what, what's your process in, I guess, assessing them and uh, choosing whether to work with them or not? Um, at, at a so I have a team of kind of former CEOs that work with me. Uh, so part of the assessment is, you know, it, it, who of our team is best suited to this individual? 
and and at a very very broadly, um, most issues confronting CEOs are relatively similar. Someone who's been a CEO, sat in a CEO seat, would be able to add an intelligent, make an intelligent contribution um, to someone. But the 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 real issue is the chemistry between them, and so you know, do we have a basis for trust? You know, do I meet you? Does someone meet the potential mentor and vice versa meet the ceo and they go that's someone i could trust someone i could listen to because you know a ceo is going to reveal things that just could not be revealed publicly you know in a very simple sense that it might be look you know i'm thinking about you know i'm thinking about retiring next year let's kind of talk that through um you know in a public company that's getting pretty close to a disclosable event um and so I need to be able to trust you to have that conversation and, and not just to have the conversation, but help me really think through it very carefully um, and ask the kind of questions that need to be asked and, and, and reflect back for me. Um, so so the, to come back to your question, you know, assessing and, and um, setting someone up with, with someone, there's a very broad thing about, you know, what kind of questions do you face, you know, cr- across the strategic, operational, um, political, stakeholder and personal domains um, what are your what are your big challenges? And within that, I'd be listening and going, "Hey, well, given those kind of challenges, let's get you together with Peter or Rebecca or you know one of the team here." Um, or maybe I might think, "Gee, that's more suited to my kind of skill set." Um, but then at the same time, I'm listening for trying to make a judgment in terms of personality. Mm-hmm. Who would they listen to? Mm-hmm. Who do I think they're going to be able to create that trusting relationship with? And um, when you think back about the process you have and, and how the mentoring continues, how do you how do you sense whether it's working or not? How do you sense that uh, you're making progress, both for the the CEO but also for yourself? Um, you know, one one very um, kind of utilitarian view would be they continue to engage us. So <laughs> um, you know, that's a helpful kind of indicator. Um, but it's it's important. I found it's important at the start to be clear about expectations, you know. And so I'll ask them, you know, if we work together for a year or so, what what, what does success look like? What is, what is going to enable you to go to the board and say that's been a good use of my time and our money, mm. you know? Mm. Um, bearing in mind that sometimes they can't articulate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also bearing in mind that once you get into it, the expectations are going to shift. Mm. So in a very, very broad sense, most clients or potential clients will 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 come to us because they're going through some kind of transition. Mm. I first time CEO or I'm preparing for becoming a CEO um, or we've just been through a big M&A and the whole world just changed or, you know, stuff shifted such that when I go to work on Monday, it's different to what it was on Friday. Mm. And the value of having someone to talk to um, is, is really quite enormous. And they're not looking for, you know, if you're a banker, you're not looking for another banker. Mm. If you're a miner, you're not looking for another miner because you have access to all that kind of expertise mm. already. They're looking for someone who can help them think through things in an entirely different way, who can give them another perspective, who can help them see the forest for the trees, who can ask the questions that aren't being asked. And so, so they're coming in with some kind of transition, they, and and so they may not be able to articulate it other than to say, frankly, I just need someone to talk to. 
you know, when I close the door and kind of look out the window or something, I need someone to talk to who can test my thinking, mm. who can help me reframe my thinking, who can create a safe harbour and a space where I can do that thinking in a way that um, doesn't disrupt me, doesn't disrupt the organisation, enables me to continue leading and but probably elevates me, almost certainly elevates me to, you know, play at my best and continue to deliver my best. Yeah. And you've really found that there is loneliness at the top, have you? I think we all know that, you know, in, in every kind of role we've got our elements of loneliness, but, um, you know, at the at the CEO level, um, you're caught in a pincer movement between the board and management mm. um, and, you know, you don't have a peer. Mm. You know, on the board level you have a group of peers and the management team you have a group of peers. But the CEO doesn't have a peer, mm. and and every single hard decision comes to the CEO. Mm. You know, if it was easy, it would have got made already. <laughs> but it's ended up on her desk because no one else was able to make the decision. Yes, and she's got to make the decision. You know, she can't bat it off to someone else, and so you're faced with. Um, you know, these demands on your time and energy. At the same time, you're thinking, I'm really trying to accomplish X, but I keep getting distracted by all these things that kind of come up that are out of my control. And so managing the uncertainties and the uncontrollables is an extraordinary challenge for, for a CEO, keeping their feet on the ground, keeping their, their life balanced and integrated so that they, you know, don't kind of win the war, win the battle and lose the war, so to speak. Yeah. Um, it's... Hard work, lonely work, and very demanding, and not many people understand that. Yeah, not many people understand what it's like. Yeah, to be there, um, or are able to create a space for for that CEO to have a safe conversation. If you believe, like we do, that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. Obviously, human-centered leadership is a very appealing mindset. You know, we obviously believe in it with a show called The Caring CEO. But, uh, you know, CEOs also have really hard things they have to achieve, be, be it quarterly results or, you know, yearly results, um, various milestones. How do you balance that? How do you encourage them or ask the right questions to help them balance the need for results and the need to provide this sort of culture of care and human-centeredness? Um, 
it depends where they are on the spectrum, <laughs> you know, how, how we're going to approach that. Um, but um, so there, there are people who are just so focused on profit that, that I wouldn't work with them. Mm. You know, the, if they're just so committed to making a whole lot of money for themselves, delivering great big profits at the expense of everything else, they're the antithesis to everything else I believe. Mm. Um, however, there's a lot of people who are on the journey who are trying to figure it out. Mm. You know, I have obligations to stakeholders, shareholders, and so forth, and I have obligations to people. Mm. And I want to care for people whilst, frankly, delivering a profit. And so mm. the, the questions, you know, that arise become questions like, for example, sufficient profit. You know, what what is a sustainable profit, mm. not what is maximum profit? Mm. Um, but the to kind of reframe the conversation, start asking myself, what does it mean to be a person? How do I show up as a person? And to, to your kind of caring concept, um, how am I caring for the people around me? Do I see you as someone's um, son, husband, brother, father, mother, wife, sister, you know? That's primarily who we are mm. before we come to work and do a job. Yeah. And so the more we can see through that kind of lens and, and the, you know, imagine if, just imagine if if we were to say, you know, our objective is that at the end of the day, you go home a better person than you were at the start. Mm. Mm. That would just reframe the, the, our, our whole approach. And I believe, and I think that we could, we could go to the cases, I think the stats are there that shows that, you know, we give discretionary effort, we get fully engaged, um, that leads to profits. We also know that if we focus on profits, it doesn't care for people and we don't quite get the profits we deserve ultimately. So strangely enough, yeah. you know, it's not as binary as profits or people. If we focus on profits, we overlook the people and ultimately yeah. won't get the profits. If we focus on people, we'll care for people and ultimately get the profits. Yeah. I've always been quite a fan of Benjamin Franklin and um, as you probably know, he started each day at 5 a.m. and wrote the question, what good am I going to do today? And then mm. at the end of the day, he asked himself the question, what what good did I do today? I guess that's really talking about yeah. what what you've just described. It's it's you know how do I get better at being good? <laughs> and that's you know the um, the question that was posed to, Pla to Plato and Socrates and others was, what does it mean to live a good life? Um, or we would frame it as, what does it mean to live a fulfilling or a flourishing life? Um, mm. And Benjamin Franklin's insight is really really important because what he highlights is. You don't kind of suddenly live a great life. Mm. You live a great day. Mm. Mm. And if at the end of the day you've said, I've moved the needle a bit, you know, I've gone closer to goodness. And if I haven't, that's kind of okay. Tomorrow I'll do a bit, I'll try a bit better and I'll make up for anything that I might not have done as well as I can today. And, and therefore it becomes incremental. You know, it's percentages over time we build a great life and we build a great life in the moment, not in the lifetime. And that's in, that's Franklin's big insight, I think. What what questions do you ask CEOs to understand what what a great life would be for them? Well, frankly, I ask them what are people going to say when they die. Mm. Um, mm. And um, you know, when I start work with a CEO, we take them away on a two or three day retreat, just the two of us. And um, you know, I, I I believe that I'm I'm a person, or the CEO is a person before they go to work. Mm. 
Mm. Work just happens to be a job that I've got. Mm. Um, but who am I? Who fronts up at work? What are my hopes and dreams and aspirations? Why am I on this planet? What is mine to do? Who do I serve? Big questions that really matter. Mm. And so the first part of a retreat will focus in on that. And, and you know, going back to me being a navigator, um, I think of it in simple terms. Where are we today? Mm. Where are we trying to get to? And how do we get there? Mm. And And most of our life tends to be designed on career steps. Whereas if we designed our life from a point of view of end game, yeah. What are people going to say at the end? Yeah. And, you know, if you didn't want to be quite so eulogistic about it, other people ask, you know, if you wrote a book at 100 years old, what would the book say and so forth? But, um, you know, I get people to do that exercise. What are people going to say at your funeral? Yeah. You know, your family, your friends, your colleagues, the people you touched and made a contribution. What are they going to say? Um, and I've never had anyone write a bad story. <laughs> no one ever writes. No one ever writes. Gee, Anthony was a jerk and we're glad he's gone. Yeah. We, we hit budget. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Gee, I mean, what a champion. I mean, it was such a privilege to work with him. We got the numbers in every time. They write things like, what a privilege it was to know Mary. Mm. You know, she she cared for me. She went out of her way for me. In fact, she did this for me and as a result of that, I've now done this or become that or whatever. They write these stories mm. because they can see these stories unfolding. They can see the possibility mm. of these stories. Mm. And the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is when you write a story like that, you look at it and you know it's real and possible. Mm. And the thing that happens is your mind shifts. Yeah. Your mind shifts straight away because you grasp, gee, I'm doing things now that are not going to get me there, Yeah, that are unhelpful to getting there. And I'm also doing things now that if I did more of them, it would accelerate that. That transforms your life. My uh, 91-year-old 90, father passed away in January and I was asked to do the um, eulogy. And I'm not sure why I thought of this, but I decided to ask uh, about 35 people from family and friends, you know, three words that describe dad. And, uh, and then I had uh, Jenny Thompson, who you know, put it into a word cloud, and uh, it was just fantastic to see because the biggest word that came up was uh, generosity, mm. and he was, you know, a really generous person, generous with his time, his advice, mm. his money. He was just a really generous things. but then there was things like honesty and integrity, uh, cheeky and fun, uh, loving and caring, and uh, it's, it's, a, mm. it's a very interesting way to ask 35 people that knew him best and see what comes up, but it was... Um, I couldn't, and it formed really the backbone of, a, of the eulogy just to talk about those sort of five qualities. It was a, mm. a great experience to uh, to do that. Yeah, well done, well done. And and you know, if we dream dream of what we want to hear people say, that's mm. what we wish for. Yeah, you know, and so it's possible to create that. Mm. It's possible to create that. When you think about, uh, you've obviously read very broadly. Who who are the the people that have had most influence on your thoughts about leadership? You know, is there one or two or three that come to mind? Stephen Covey was certainly one, you know, with the seven habits of highly effective people in particular. Mm. Um, he wrote other books on, you know, people first and so forth. Um, but, but he's one who's um, quite profound. I would keep going back to the philosophers, though, you know, Plato and the Republic. Um, Aristotle's ethics, 
um, some of the works of Kierkegaard and, and, and Heidegger and others. And because they're grappling with what it means to be a person in an environment, say in a city or in a relationship or, you know, becoming who, who, who I can be. Um, and, and to me, they, those are kind of more central to the issues of leadership rather than, if you like, some of the practicalities of leadership. If I think about contemporary writers um, who are kind of looking at looking at leadership, I think what, one of the ones that, that really does stand out for me is Roger Martin, um, former dean of the um, Rotman School of Management at, at Toronto. Um, just a very, very, very good thinker. And it just basically reframes thinking and leading and leadership in a, in a really astute kind of way. It's interesting you raise um, Stephen Covey in that book because I remember reading it when it first came out. I don't know how long ago. It was 25, 30 years ago or something. And uh, just recently, just this year, I, I listened to it via audio book and where he sort of uh, read the book. And uh, I thought, boy, this stacks up well. It really stacks up well. You know, I remember being quite impressed by it, but um, actually listen to him speak about it and um, the principles that applied. It's it's a very um, it's a very convincing book. He certainly had a, a you know real. It it is, and and it's timeless. Mm. And and you might recall from the from the introduction, it was his PhD. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, you might recall from the introduction that he did all this research into theories of leadership and thinking about leadership. And, he, and he, his big observation was that in relatively recent period, thinking about leadership had shifted to traits, behaviours, attributes and competencies away from the character of the leader. Yeah. And that's kind of why I'm very interested in his thinking as well. You know, that was my concern. So the social scientists can tell us stuff about leadership, mm. but they can't tell us really about the person, the character of the person who is the leader. Mm. Um, and, and that's where Covey went with his on, on the character, whereas I went more to the um, what we would call the anthropological, what does it mean to be a person um, who, who is in, in that role of a leader. Um, that's the stuff that interests me and kind of resonates with my work. How do you uh, encourage leaders to practice self-care, you know, to look after their physical and mental health? It's... Um, it's an interesting question, that isn't it? Because we um, we have habits, mm. as you know, and and I would say that the majority of people I meet, and I'd hope I'd hate to be someone to kind of generate some research to. Well, I'd love actually if they show me some research to prove this is wrong. <laughs> um, I kind of have a working assumption that most people have bad habits, poor poor habits, poor habits when when it comes to their own health and well being. Mm. Um, and they've probably sacrificed those on the altar of success. Mm. Um, they've pursued money or they've pursued material goods or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, I've worked with leaders who knowingly would work themselves into hospital. Mm. You know, in other words, they'd work until they couldn't work in like, until their body gave up. Mm. And then they'd kind of recuperate and come back to the fray. Um, you know, this this idea of you know, politics being a blood sport or business being, you know, survival of the fittest. I think it's just an awful, awful attitude mm. towards leadership. So so having said <laughs> there's some problems out there, 
the the big issue, and I, I come I'm coming back to my earlier observation about the day, what mm. um what I kind of often refer to as the quotidian, a French word for just the ordinariness of the day. Mm. Um, your routines really matter, mm. and um, really down to the basics. What time you go to bed? What time you get up? Getting your exercise in each day. What time you get off to the office? And you know how you prepare for meetings how you manage your energy through the day. Most people, as you know, um, they arrive at the end of the day and collapse at home. <laughs> and certainly when they get on holidays, their body goes into a bit of a shutdown um, and that's their recovery time. <laughs> well, the question is, you know, how do you, how do you arrive at the end of the day so you have as much in the tank as you did at the start, mm-hmm. not how do you arrive empty? Mm-hmm. And that's a conversation I would have with every single client because they haven't figured it out. I don't mean as in, hey, now we need to talk about this. It just comes <laughs> up because they just know they haven't got the right routines. They haven't been able to figure it out. I talk a lot about uh, resilience and well-being, and um, I recommend each day people act like a VIP. And what that is, V stands for vitality, which is our physical health, You know, good exercise, good rest, good nutrition, intimacy which is our emotional health, you know, positive relationships in our personal and home life. And uh, prosperity is contribution health. So that's our contribution, the positive impact we make in our work or, you know, or working for charity or donating around that time. And and it is really about thinking about that each day as you advocate that, uh, you know, you need to top up each of those three (laughs) each day to be able to sustain good energy levels and good health. Yeah, and and the the um you you, you remind me of all, all the work of Jim Jim Lair L O E H R yeah um wrote a book called the, you, yeah you're familiar with his work yeah um he just highlights that so much it's it's about your energy not about your time yeah and the moment you make those kind of shifts and manage your energy more effectively you then eat better sleep better exercise better um. You know, we're in this for the long haul. You know, I plan to live to 100 or die trying, so I'm kind of getting there. Um, we've got to look after ourselves to mm. to be there, you know, because there's, there's so much fun being alive. <laughs> so how do you fit all those important things for your own well-being into your day? What, what's your planning process for that, um, Anthony? So I'll talk to you about the ideal. <laughs> Bearing in mind, I do not always live up to my ideals. Um <laughs> And because I'm, you know, a part of being human is we we have these wonderful dreams. We don't quite do it all the time. Uh, But conceptually, I'm always asking myself, where will the world be in five years' time and how do I get there first? Mm. In other words, what trends are on and how do I be there when that wave breaks? You know, is it a new skill I have to develop, new relationships I have to develop or whatever? So that gives me something of a if you like, a medium-term horizon in the context of my overall life with the contribution that I'm trying to make Mm. with my life. So in a sense, I'm always working back from the big picture, the longer term back into. And then in in January each year, uh, I like to get on my motorbike and get away for a week on the bike, riding through the mountains and things, and and just to clear my head. And, And very broadly, I'll spend the mornings kind of out on the bike and the afternoon sitting by a lake or a mountain or whatever, um, reflecting. And I'll reflect back on the year that's been and what I wrote about that year, and I'll start dreaming some dreams for the year ahead. And then, of course, process-wise, you then box that into, you know, months, days, weeks, and so forth. Um, and then, you know, create some gates uh, along the way for when I'm, when I'm going to achieve certain things. But to my early comment, it does come down then ultimately to the day. 
mm. what I'm going to do today to move the needle mm. and stay in the routine. So I have, I have really tight routines mm. um, that operate for me wherever I am in the world um, that I follow every single day in order to ensure well-being across all the human dimensions. Very good. When you um, think about CEOs making mistakes or, or any manager or leader making mistakes, in your experience, what is the most common area that they can often be blindsided by? Gosh. Straight away I think of something like ego or hubris. Um, <laughs> you know, I get blindsided by the fact that I think I'm a genius and know everything um, and therefore I don't listen to others. But but most effective CEOs are sufficiently self-aware to say, hey, you give me a point of view here or challenge me if, I, if I'm off track. Um, I, I'm going to take that question on notice and give that give that some thought. Nothing um, nothing evident comes to mind. No worries. Uh, looking back on uh, your career so far, Anthony, and if you could go back and speak to your seventeen year old self on the on the deck of the uh, of, a, of a ship, what um, what advice would you give to that seventeen year old person, knowing what you know now? Um, well, he wouldn't listen, um, but, uh, but I'd, uh, I'd certainly be saying to him, Anthony, grow up for goodness sake. Um, I don't know if I could grow up, but, but I know on how, on, on hindsight, how immature I really was mm. and becoming human is a lifelong work. And so I've still got a fair way to go. The, when I was, um, when I first started school, the headmistress of the school, so in kindergarten, first year prep, um, the headmistress of the school came in and she said, Howard, pick up your books and follow me. So I followed her and she took me to another class and said, sit there, there's your desk. Um, and so I'd gone to year one. No one said anything. I'm just kind of worked away through it. And my mother at the end of the day said, when I came home, she said, anything happened at school tonight? I said, well, it was, it was, it was kind of strange, you know, the, Teacher came and had Mr. put me in his other room. And my mum said, Oh, you've been put up. I said, What do you mean put up? And she kind of explained this, um, you know, that I was kind of operating at the level kind of above where I where where I was. Um and so I, I always achieved in inverted commas intellectually. And that was fine until I was a teenager. Mm. But then as a teenager, I was kind of two years almost emotionally behind most of my peers. Mm. And my parents could see that. They'd kind of say, look, you know, you're not ready or whatever. And I'd be thinking, yeah, but all my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so by the time I went away to see at 17, I was frankly kind of a little bit emotionally stunted, mm-hmm. you know, or I was, I was <laughs> probably a lot <laughs> underdone um, that, 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 I, that I know on reflection now. Um, and so I, so I chased that for a long time trying to figure out who the heck I was and where I fit in the world. Um, and so if anything, I'd be going back to that guy saying, just draw some breath, <laughs> just allow it to unfold. You don't have to make it happen, you know. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine, Anthony. It's going to be fine. <laughs> the things that I've stressed over, you know, a bit like Mark Twain saying, I lost, I lost more, more sleep over the things that didn't happen than the things that did, <laughs> you know. Anthony, it's going to be fine. It's not bad advice, though, is it, to just breathe and to uh, 
and return to the present moment. There's a lot to be uh, yeah, a lot to be gained by that for sure. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Anthony. Really appreciate um, your observations. Thank you, Graham. And really interesting to hear the perspective from different CEOs. You know, I was in recruitment executive search for a long time and um, it always fascinated people used to say our industry is really different when you talk to them <laughs> but then it was always very similar you know it was always very competitive industry it was hard getting good people and it was constantly changing so <laughs> I think uh, yep, yep. You, you've really highlighted that those things all move and shake but you know just being and developing good character and good character skills is uh, is such a good message, particularly these really volatile times. So um, really appreciate you being part of the Caring CEO, Anthony. Thank you. A privilege. I wish you well, Graham. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.